Well, let's go ahead and get that started. So, um, solar project due today. Yay! That's the last. That's the biggest thing left. Then the only other big thing left will be the final. So I'll talk about that for a moment in a second. Then we have homework five is due next time. If you did the first four and you're happy with your grades, feel free to skip it. You'll get a zero and then it gets dropped. So that's up to you. Do either way, look at the questions. So do look at the questions because that is material that will come up on the final. Uh, then the only other things left for next week are the last review quiz. You can do those. There should also be. I did put that up, did I not? I put a second review quiz up there. Let me see. Make sure I did, unless somebody knows and already looked. But I believe I put up a last review quiz that you can take for the final if you want. Um, you might have to go into general links and quizzes to find it. I'm not sure where I linked it, but there is a practice final for extra credit. So if you want to go and take that, the only bad, it's, it's more of an extra credit example for you than it is review for the final. So I feel bad about that, but there's no way to really do it the way I had it planned to set up. So it is extra credit. It's up to five points. Um, it's, I think it's like, it's about the number of questions you'll see on the final. So it's 40 or 50 questions. So it is a lot. The only problem is they're taken randomly from the test banks. And when I make up your final for the old material, it's going to come right from your exams. I just had no way to pull questions. I just could not pull questions from your exams. So it's, it's extra credit, but how much it'll help you. I mean, it's worth taking once at least, get, get a couple points extra credit, and review the material. But in terms of the questions, you're going to be better off reviewing your exams. So I have, to, I have to, for future class, come up with a better way to be able to actually pick the questions that are going to come up there. I see a question there and a question here. So yeah. I'm sorry? Is it one of the things where you take it? You could take it as many times as you want, and the last one is recorded. I think actually here, I think I actually, for this one, I thought I just said I took your highest grade for this one. So you can keep taking it. If you want to try to get five points, you can keep going through and through until you get it. But it's 50 questions, and you are going to, it's going to take you some time. So I don't want you to spend excess time because there are going to be questions there that I guarantee you will not see on the final because if they weren't on one of your previous four exams. And it's just one of the difficulties with the way I have it set up is that I, want, I don't want you to have to review all of that. But it was the only way I could give you a few extra credit points. But I have another uh, example that I'll be giving in a minute too for the final. For the final, what I am looking at doing, did I bring my little sheet? No. I'll just have to try to, no, there I did. Um, what I'm looking at doing is giving um, 25 questions on the old material. That would be about six from each of your first four exams. Just multiple choice, or just, I don't even do true false in this class, so just multiple choice. Will not include the essays from the old exams. I was going back and forth between doing that at 25 questions at two points each or 50 questions at one, and I'm guessing that most students would rather have just less questions. Unless I'm, here, unless I'm hearing an overwhelming, you know, and if you don't want to speak out, email me and say, no, I'd rather have more questions. They're worth less, but you have more questions to do. So it'll be about six questions from each exam. And then there would be 15 questions from the new material, which is really just the last three chapters, 28, 29, and 30. There'd be 15, again, worth two points each. That gets us up to 80 points. Then there's the essay is 20. There'll just be one essay, one required. I'm not going to do the multiple essays just because it's quicker to grade. So there'll only be one required essay. It will be worth 20 points. The required will only be based on the last three chapters. 
So that essay, the essay, the essay will be part of that 50 points. So half, half the exam is your old material, 50 points worth, all multiple choice, 25 questions, two points each. Uh, the new material will be 15 questions at two points each for 30 points, and then are required at one essay, which will be 20, and it will be like the ones I've done for the required will be broken into four parts, three, four, three, four, five parts. So there'll be a little bit of question on each, something relating to each of the three chapters that we're covering. But it will only cover that. The essay will only be on that portion of the material. It will not cover anything earlier. And just, you know, that, that makes it quicker for me to get them graded and back for you so I can get final grades uh, posted. So in terms of the solar project, um, a couple of things that I did see on the others, and this gives you a chance, you know, if you're already turning it in, you don't, but a couple of problems that it had is that when you're looking for the references, you're welcome to use, the textbook is fine for one, you can use any other outside source is fine. Uh, one of my, um, like some of the online classes were using my video lectures, that was great. I had no problem with them using those as well. Uh, they're related to the textbook, but not exactly following it. Um, what you can't use is something that you did. So I mean, if you're going to cite something, if you're going to, I had people who would turn in their photographs. This is my source, my picture that I took. That's not, that's not an external source. So I'm trying to catch it now. So if you're still trying to fix that, if you want to change it, you can still change it and submit it online later today, and that's fine. So that was one problem that I had, had not just one person do, but a number of people uh, try to do for the project. So it has to be something external. Could be mine, but not something that you, that you did. Is that a question, sir? Yeah. I'm sorry? You can use all the key points on the final. Everything is up through chapter 30. Um, yeah? If we submit on DTOL, the only way to get like our data sheets or graphs is to take a picture of them and just put it in the Yeah, take a picture of them and drag them right. Just make sure they're in the format, correct, in the right space. So make sure everything's in the right thing as I go through them. So if you're going to take pictures of them, drag them in. Don't put them as I one of the other things. I did have a couple people put them at the end. Don't put graphs, see graphs at the end. They've got to be in. And it's just because when I'm going through that grading sheet, it's, I need to see everything in that correct order. So make sure you have all of those in there. I talked about the references. Make sure you don't miss those uh, required questions, which were half of, the, half of that. I had a couple people who missed it, you know, minus 25 points. That hurts. And then I know I talked about it when I put up there, put the data up. Uh, we went through my data. Please make sure you turn that into. I had people that didn't give me that data sheet. I need to see my data sheet too with it. So if you didn't forget it, see, quick, quick, catch that in. Um, make sure also that you don't, and I talked about it when I gave you that data, don't take my data and try to make extra data for yourself because you didn't get enough observations. I had one person do that, at least one person that I caught. Maybe somebody else did it and did got away with it, but I had to give them a zero on the project. That hurts. 145 points zero is not, it's not worth losing, hey, I could only get three observations and this is what I turned in. You're better off losing eight or 10 points than 145. So if I can, if I can, obviously some people may get away with it like anything else, but if you get caught with it, it's a zero on the whole project and that just crushes you. So again, I just wanted to bring those things forward. So if you're looking at anything else, finishing up, that's what you need to look at for the project. It's due today, meaning you got till 6 o'clock tomorrow. So if you need to throw those data sheets in, make sure you have the data sheets, make sure you have the graphs that show my data and yours. Um, a number of you did that already in class. So that's just what I kind of wanted to 
review, remember a little bit as to what's going up, going on. So again, that's due today. If you have it and you're turning it in today, just make sure I grab it, get it after class. Uh, homework five, and uh, the review quiz in the final or next week. Uh, lab. There's not going to be a lab this week. I looked at the labs. There's almost no reason for it. I could do another lab, but most of you don't need to do another lab. Because, and I'm thinking if I said, well, you don't need, if you're happy with your lab grades, you can just drop this and everybody would, almost everybody probably would just take off and say we're done. So what I did is I gave you a final lab with a perfect score, awesome. essentially. So I, get, I did the lab, so you get the right number of lab points. I gave everybody a perfect score on it. So instead of me giving you another lab for some people to do or one more thing to grade, I just gave everybody a lab and dropped your two lab grades. What that means is that we'll finish chapters 28 and 29 today. I need to get through 30. And then I'm hoping that this makes up for the snow day where I can go ahead and at least do a little bit on the planets. So I'm going to do at least a lecture on the planets, which will lead me to a few more extra credit questions on the final. So I'll do the photos of the day. There should be four of them last week and this week, two, four that we'll talk about. And then I'll throw in some questions on the planets, and I'll talk more about those exactly. In fact, I'll tell you exactly what you're going to get on them next week, what I'm going to ask for. So a few more extra credit examples for you know, coming up for the final, because I know that's what everybody's going to worry about. I should have these graded by the end of the week, so going into the final, you know where you stand. I'm not going to make you wait on your, if you want to look at your grades up on D2L, I won't have them back Thursday. I really doubt that, because I'll have people turning them in tomorrow morning. But I expect by Friday or into the beginning of the weekend, I'll have them all graded and done for you. So at least you'll be able to look at your grade and see, well, I, out of 100 points I need, I need a 50 on the final for a B, or I need a 70 on the final for an A, or whatever. Are you dropping Yes. Yep. Yeah. Labs have been dropped. I'm dropping attendances as they go. The last attendance I can't really do until you're here for the final, but I assume everybody will be here. Uh, so articles have already been done. The homework will be done as soon as this is submitted and graded. Our uh, labs are already done. So everything else is, I am putting them in as we go. So right now the grades, I know the exams don't always show it, but the grades are actually doing really well in the class. I think 10? It was like two, thir two thirds, three quarters of the class has like an 85% or better. And that's including, I know exams have been tough. So they have been tougher exams, exams this semester, so I'm going to work on that. But with everything else and with how little the exams cost, count, it's, uh, people are doing really well overall. All right, so questions? Again, I'll remind you of the material for the final again uh, tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow, not tomorrow. How about next time? That'll be Thursday. But that's what my plan is right now. We're going to get through chapters 28 through 30. So, otherwise, our picture of the day for today is you can read it up there. It's a rocket launch between the mountains. So, this is actually a Chinese, a couple of Chinese satellites being launched, uh, same site from which they launched their rover. Uh, a few years ago. So you can see the trail, there's the smoke of it, and there's the actual trail as this heads up, up into orbit. Uh, they're navigation satellites. They're going up into an intermediate orbit. So when you, or when you talk about orbiting the Earth, there's not just one layer level of orbiting. You can orbit at all different levels. You can be a couple hundred miles above the Earth's surface. That would be where the International Space Station is. Very low orbit. It's only a few hundred miles above the Earth. That's where Hubble Space Telescope is. Or you can be in a really high orbit. 
tens of thousands of miles up above the Earth's surface. That's where we put the geosynchronous satellites, the communication satellites. Uh, they're nice when they're up there. When you're up at 20 some thousand miles above the Earth's surface, it takes 24 hours to go around the Earth, which means it stays in the same spot in the sky. So we call it synchronous. It takes 24 hours to orbit. Well, while it's orbiting, the Earth is turning. And they turn, it turns and they orbit at exactly the same rate. This works if you use one of the satellite companies for TV. You know, you have a satellite dish that just points out there in the sky. Well, if that satellite were something like the space station, you'd have to be moving it to track the space station across the sky. The satellite stays in one spot. It points at that one satellite, which is up in a very high orbit, and beams its signals down to that range. So it's one of the conveniences of a communication satellite. Otherwise, you know, if your satellite, if your satellite dish satellite that was broadcasting was rising and setting, all of a sudden it sets, you, know, you lose your signal. Nothing until it rises again. So the, how fast things orbit depend on how far they are, are up above. If you get up to that geosynchronous, you're up at 24 hours. Something like the space station takes about 90 minutes. So an hour and a half to zip around the Earth once. So Sunrise and sunset happen every 45 minutes. 45 minutes, sun rises. 45 minutes later, sun sets as you're going through the space station. So much quicker and you're in a much lower orbit like that. All right, questions? OK, I don't see anything else. So we'll go back to chapter 28. I'm remembering this. Is this where I ended? Anyone who's? I, thought, I remember talking about this image, and I didn't remember talking about the next one. So that's kind of what I was going with. If anyone's going to tell me differently, I'll, I'll know what, all right, this is where I was. You see? I did talk about this image. I, maybe? I remember putting it up there. I remember seeing this. I remember this image. So was the one before it was where I was? This was before, the gravitational lensing. It was the, it was the gravitational lensing section. You remember seeing this one and this one? I didn't remember going over the superclusters and voids. So that's kind of what I was going on. But this is the problem when you had an exam. So I'm trying to remember back to, I should have put a note in there as to which one we ended at. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start with, I'm pretty sure this is where we were. So I'll go back and just review gravitational lensing briefly, uh, just to bring us back in. And then we'll kind of jump into the next, uh, next section. But gravitational lensing go back even one more, was the bending of light by a massive object. It doesn't have to be just one object. It can be a whole group of objects. So in this case, you have a galaxy, not just one, one object, but made up of many stars, a supermassive black hole, a dark matter halo, that is actually providing the gravity of the lens. And that will anything that's right behind it will then be bent. Light will travel this way, but it gets bent by the gravitational field of that galaxy and comes to Earth. So we'll get one image that looks like it's out in one direction. And the light traveling this way will come here, which is in another, which makes it look like it's in another direction. And when we look at the sky, we'll see the foreground galaxy, but we'll see images on either side of it. And we actually see images like this. This is an example of lensing by a whole cluster of galaxies. So we see a gravitational, we see a cluster, all of these objects in here. There's one star, but everything we see here is a galaxy. 
And these little streamers over here, 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 and here are actually a distant galaxy that's beyond that cluster. So one galaxy way off in the distance there, and its light is getting bent as it comes through the gravitational field of this cluster. If you had a perfect alignment, you'd actually get a circle. You'd actually get an entire circle of this uh, galaxy. If you had a really strong, really massive black hole doing this and not a lot of other material and everything was lined up perfectly, you'd actually get a circle. You'd get all of those images. But the one important thing is this also includes the unseen dark matter. So dark matter that we cannot see, we can't see it, we can't detect it through most methods, but we can detect it through its gravity. So that allows us the amount of bending tells us how much matter has to be there. We can see a certain number of clusters, or galaxies in the cluster. And we know how much extra matter has to be there that we can't see in order to account for the amount of lensing. So again, that's one of the other things that leads us to the idea that dark matter has to exist out there. And as we'll see this in the next chapter, it's a big part of what makes up the universe. So going on to hopefully the new material, superclusters and voids, when we look at those clusters of galaxies, things like this, they group on even larger scales. So not only do we have clusters of galaxies, we had our local group, we had the Virgo cluster, the Coma cluster, very large groupings of galaxies. Um, let's see, so we've got all these different ones. You can see the groupings here and here and here. There's the Coma supercluster. Uh, again, one of the very large, large clusters that we see. But they tend to group together and give us areas where there's lots of galaxies here. Again, dots here are representing galaxies and even clusters of galaxies. And we also have voids. There are regions where there's pretty much nothing. So there's a big void here. Here's all the galaxies around it, but this group is nothing. This one over here, there's nothing there. So our universe has very large groupings of material, very large clustering. Yeah? I won't say nothing, that there's not some random galaxy or random particles that may be there, but compared to what we see, it's empty. Okay. So pretty much there's nothing there. And in fact, when we look at the whole universe, let's go, let me go to the next slide and give you a better idea of what this means. Because that's the comment there. 90% of the galaxies fill 10% of the space in the universe. That's how many voids there are and how empty they are. Because we can account for, in all of, this, in all of these groupings, we can account for 90% of the galaxies. But in terms of the volume of the universe, it's only 10% of it. So that other 90% of the universe, OK, it's not completely empty, but it's got 10% of the galaxies. So relatively speaking, yeah, you've got these areas where there's lots of galaxies, all the material is concentrated. And you've got these other regions where there's Nothing, essentially nothing. And some of them are great, great voids that there probably is nothing that we know of there. So one of the things that we can do in order to make a map like this, here we can kind of get to see all of it, but when we want to try to make a map like this, we want to look at the distances. One big thing we have to do is to get the distances to the galaxies in order to map it out, to figure out what everything is like. Where are the positionings of the galaxies, the distances? It's easy to find where they're located on the sky. 
Right? If we're going to find the position of something, we need three coordinates, right? x, y, and z. It's so far along, so far up and down, and it's so far away. We need that distance to get this portion to really be able to map out the galaxies and to see the structures that we see. We do that through redshift surveys. Essentially, you go through, look at lots of galaxies, measure their redshifts, and use Hubble's law to determine the distances. And what we find is that not only are the clusters, those clusters cluster into superclusters, which cluster into filaments. So you can almost trace along some of these regions here where there are filaments, which are, cl- which are groupings of superclusters together. So the galaxies continue to cluster and group together, leaving us these big open voids in between. And that's what I was mentioning here. You know, 90% of the galaxies can be accounted for in these filaments. The other 10% are scattered around, either towards the edges, and many of the voids are really regions where you don't find any galaxies, or very, very few galaxies. So you find very little material there. So finishing up this section, I guess we were almost done with it when we were doing that last week. Um, Galaxies group into clusters, the clusters group into superclusters, which group into filaments. So the structures continue to build. You know, we started with stars. Stars build into galaxies. Galaxies build into clusters, into superclusters, into the filaments. And in between those, there are really empty or pretty much empty voids in between those. And what the cosmological principle states, we went back over that earlier last time, is that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic on the largest scales. Now going back to the previous, what does that mean? It pretty much means no matter what direction you look, you see roughly the same number of galaxies. So if I take a count in this direction, just over distance, I'd see you know, so many thousands of galaxies in that general direction of the sky. If I pick another random section over here, I'd still get the same number of galaxies. It also means that if I take a big enough chunk of the universe, it looks the same. So that means we've got to get chunks that are big enough that we account for these voids. But if I take a big chunk out here, that this chunk has so many galaxies in it, well, this chunk has about the same, that one has about the same, and they're all going to be about the same. But you've got to get on the really big scales to see that. On the small scales, yes, you can pick sections that are voids. You can pick sections that are concentrated in galaxies. If you take a very small square here, I could easily put one within a void. Or I could put one right on a filament and have lots of galaxies in it. But if I imagine taking big squares, especially further out here, that chunk of the universe looks about the same as that one, which looks about the same as that one. Doesn't mean they're all going to have 2,582,614 galaxies in them. But roughly, you're not going to find ones when you look on the larger scales. You're not going to find sections that have millions of galaxies and sections that have dozens of galaxies. They're going to be roughly the same. So what does this mean? And again, I've mentioned dark matter a little bit in terms of the, um, uh, in terms of the uh, last section when we were talking about the gravitational lensing. We see it in galaxies. So this, when we looked at galaxies, and I think we looked at something similar when I talked about our galaxy and we looked at other galaxies, we talked about a rotation curve. Rotation curve is just how fast galaxy, the stars are moving as you get further and further away from the visible part of the disk. So when we look at the galaxy there, the visible disk ends right about here. 
So the stars, we can still find stars, we can find galaxy, dust clouds going further and further out that are orbiting the galaxy. What we expect is that it will go up and then it should level off and it should eventually drop, real drop. Because you're getting outside most of the mass. And like in our solar system, inner planets move quickly, outer planets move more slowly. So this is what we expect to find. When we look here, from starlight as far out as we can see stars, things continue to rise. And even when we get further out looking at hydrogen, it continues to rise, not even close to what we would expect. So this is the model, this is what the model predicts. This is what the observations show. Something's wrong. Right? I mean, your observations are not that much in error to, to differentiate this much. It's not like it was predicting something right up close to this. There's a big difference between what's predicted based on what we see in terms of gravity and what we are observing. So what is this material? And it's what we call dark matter. What we've looked at so far, most of what we've looked at is ordinary matter. Right? Us, the planet, we look at uh, the Earth, we can look at the stars, the galaxies, black holes, everything like that is still ordinary matter. It's stuff that we can understand and we can detect. These are things that give off electromagnetic energy. They give off light of some kind. Might be radio waves if it's a gas cloud, might be x-rays, uh, might be visible light, but they give off some type of electromagnetic energy. However, what we see based on things like this is that there's a lot of dark matter in galaxies. And in fact, it can be 90% of the mass. So what we're seeing when we look at a galaxy, there's 10% of the mass of the galaxy. The rest of it is invisible to us. It doesn't give off radio waves, doesn't give off x-rays, doesn't interact any way except gravitationally. And that accounts for 90% of, of the mass of the galaxy. So for everything you see here, you know, imagine nine more, nine more stars, nine more gas clouds that spread out in a big halo. That's what's required to explain the observations. The other option would be that gravity's wrong. This would work too. There are two options. You could say that you know, there's dark matter. If you don't like to believe in dark matter because it seems strange that how can this stuff be undetectable? You know, what's going on with it? You can also uh, say that gravity's wrong. Maybe gravity doesn't work on the largest scales the way Einstein says it does. Most astronomers will probably disagree with that. The current thinking is that dark matter is what exists. But there are, there are scientists who are working on you know, other models of gravity that will try to explain this difference without needing dark matter. Either one of them is possible. You could have that going either way to be able to, expl to explain it. But from right now, what we know it is that dark matter that exists. We see this in our galaxy. We see it in other galaxies. And to some extent, we see dark matter in essentially every galaxy. Maybe larger, maybe smaller, depending on the galaxy and its location. But we seem to see this dark matter. This, whatever occurs, occurs in not just these three galaxies, in which case it would be something unusual with those, but occurs everywhere. How about within clusters of galaxies? Well, they're too far away. We can't do rotation curves within the clusters. But we can look at the motions of the galaxies. How are they moving? 
how fast are the gal what are the average speeds of the galaxies? We can measure that, how fast the galaxies are zipping around each other. We can tell then, we know how fast the galaxies are moving on average. We then know how long or how long it would take those galaxies to disperse out into space. If they're moving faster, they're eventually going to spread out. Because the clusters are still here, there has to be enough gravity to bind them for billions of years, to hold them together. Otherwise, they'd diffuse out into space and we'd have galaxies just spread out all over the place, not concentrated into clusters and superclusters and filaments. We'd have them all over the place. So there has to be enough matter to keep them from escaping for at least, what, 13, 14 billion years. So we can do the calculations that figure out what they're moving and find out that there has to be a lot of dark matter there. So that's evidence for dark matter within clusters. The other is gravitational lensing. As I showed you in the previous section, the light of a cluster can bend, sorry, the gravity of the cluster can bend the light from around it. So we can then make measurements of all these different clusters, use their gravitational lensing to calculate their masses. And we still find that there is a lot more mass, 10, 20 times the amount of mass that we're seeing. Just based on that. Now again, Einstein could be wrong. Maybe general relativity doesn't predict the bending properly. When we get to a certain amount of mass, maybe there's something, some place where it breaks down as a way to explain that. But based on what we understand right now and how well tested general relativity is, you know, there's not that many questions about general relativity in terms of how it works. It survived every test and challenge that it's been put to. So astronomers will say that that means that there has to be these great dark matter halos to account for the bending that we see. So when we see it, we see something very similar to this. Now here's some of the bending that we would see. Some of these galaxies, all these things that are stretched out, those are galaxies that are behind the cluster. Some of them are multiple images of the same galaxy, but everything that's kind of stretched out and distorted are not part of the cluster, but are actually way behind it. So determining the mass is again, the different ways that we can use this. We can use the gravitational lensing. We can use the galaxy motions to be able to determine the mass of the cluster. And we find that when we look at these biggest scales, the amount of matter gets larger and larger. The amount of mass needed gets larger and larger. Where did I go? I tried to jump way too far ahead. There we go. So how much dark matter in there? Remember way back we looked at a mass to light ratio? That was all defined by the sun. The sun has one solar mass and gives off one solar luminosity. And if you divide one by one, you get one. So the mass to light ratio of the sun is one. And for a less massive star or more massive star, that value will change. A very massive star will have a smaller mass to light ratio because it's giving off lots of light relative to the amount of mass. So we could look around the sun, we get a mass to light ratio of two. Things like galaxies, mass to light ratio is getting to be 10. That means you're getting a lot more mass than you're seeing luminous material. And when we start to look at small clusters, you get that mass to light ratio of 100. Large clusters, 300. That means there's a lot more material. That's only, all this is counting is the amount of mass that we can determine that exists based on 
any of the gravitational effects, the motions of the clusters or the uh, gravitational lensing. So what it tells us is that in almost every K and in every case, the large ratios are telling us that we're seeing very little dark matter. So sun would not have dark matter associated with it. The local solar neighborhood, probably not so much. Maybe a little bit when we talk about the inner parts of the Milky Way, but this would get larger and larger as you get further and further out. When you start to get to other these clusters, the mass to light ratio gets so much larger. And again, that's all, when we talk about luminosity, that's everything. We're not talking about just visible light. So that includes radio waves, that includes x-rays, that includes the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So whatever, we're, whatever is here is dark, something that we cannot see. So what is this? Well, there are two examples that we can have. And those are the machos and the wimps. So mat machos are massive compact halo objects. Oh, the ac an acronym, acronym for their name, uh, massive compact halo objects. Those are ordinary matter. Those are things like black holes, which if a black hole sitting there all by itself isn't giving off any energy, so it's going to look really dark. Um, brown dwarfs, white dwarfs are really faint, so if you put those way out in the halo of the galaxy, we're not going to see enough light from them. So there's some things that could account for dark matter, but be ordinary material. But you're not going to be able to detect them directly. You can only see them through their gravitational effects. So if these existed, so if our halo of our galaxy was filled with black holes and brown dwarfs and white dwarfs and all that different kinds of material, that would still affect the gravity. That would add a lot of mass. That could add a lot of mass out there. Remember how much mass you're going to have to add, though. You have to add galaxies worth of mass. So brown dwarfs which are much less massive than the sun, less than a tenth the mass of the sun. You need 10 of them just to make every sun. You're talking about a lot of material that you need out there to be able to explain it. White dwarfs are roughly the mass of the sun. So for each white dwarf you have out there, that can account for one sun. One sun's worth of matter. But we need hundreds of billions of those out there. And if they existed, there are measurements that we can make to try to account for oh, how much could be out there. There's certainly some. You know, there are going to be some black holes out there. There were stars that formed in the halo of the galaxy. Some of them would have turned to black holes. Some of them would have turned to white dwarfs. There are some out there. But what we find from measurements is there's not nearly enough to account for the amount of dark matter seen that we need in the halo of our galaxy to account for the observations. So. WIMPs are the other ones. These are, they get their name, weakly interacting massive particles, which means that these are particles that are exotic type particles that don't emit electromagnetic radiation. Talked about the sun way, way back. We had neutrinos. Neutrinos were an example of a WIMP. They don't interact with anything. They zoom right through the sun. They zip through an astronomical unit worth of lead, just travel right through it. They don't interact the way ordinary material would. Right? Try to send any electromagnetic radiation through something that dense, it all gets stopped. Doesn't matter if it's gamma rays, doesn't matter if it's radio waves, it's going to get stopped over certain distances. Neutrinos would just zip, zip right through it. But there's also possibilities that there are other types of exotic particles. Neutrinos themselves are very low mass. Really, they have a tiny amount of mass, but it's extremely small. But it's quite possible that there could be other exotic particles that exist that are actually quite massive. 
but they still don't interact with anything. So they behave like neutrinos in that they can travel through anything, but they actually have a significant amount of mass. These are some of the things that astronomers currently think might make up the dark matter. Um, in terms of dark matter, we have hot and cold. So you can have hot and cold dark matter. Uh, what we mean when we talk about temperatures, hot and cold, hot means things are moving quickly, cold means things are moving slowly. So hot dark matter is not one that we expect exists or not exists in any sort of significant quantities because if it existed, it's moving very quickly, it would smear out clumps. So this model here starts at a time we had everything spread out and what we estimate the universe has slowly done is evolve into these long filaments and voids. That's what we see. So this is an example of some of the simulations. Hot dark matter, if the, th- if the dark matter is moving quickly, like neutrinos, it would smear out all of this. So the cold dark matter means that they're much more massive particles moving very slow. And if you have those, those are actually consistent with the models that we make and the, what we see in the universe. If we make a model here, and we throw in a certain amount of cold dark matter to account for the observations, then we can then explain the observations that we see today. If I do the same model with hot dark matter, it pretty much just stays smoothly spread out. If we do it without any dark matter, it will slowly condense, but it takes longer times. It will not have condensed in the age of the universe yet. So if there were not dark matter, we shouldn't have galaxies and clusters and all of that stuff that we have uh, that we've been looking at over the last few classes. Those should not exist yet if there were not dark matter. So the simulations that we make tend to explain the dark matter that we're able to see. Now I'm going to do an aside here, just one slide on dark energy and then I'll come back to this later in the next chapter. But dark energy is another uh, component of the universe that have been discovered. In terms of matter, Dark matter makes up just about everything. So in terms of how much there is, if you have one gram of ordinary luminous matter, that's the stuff we see, that's the stuff we've been studying all class. Stars, galaxies, all of that stuff, nebulae, all of that, anything that we see, anything that gives off any type of radiation. For every one gram of that, you have four grams worth of non-luminous stuff. Things that are dark, impossible to see, So what we've been studying, I should tell you this at the beginning of the class, we're only going to talk about 1% of the universe for the most part until we get to the very end. But that's everything. This is everything we've studied so far. This is is stuff that's dark. This could be things like black holes that aren't giving off any energy. This could be those uh, brown dwarfs just sitting out there very far away. They're essentially non-luminous. For all of those, then we have 27 grams of dark matter, overwhelming them, five times the amount Five grams there, you've got 27 grams there. More than five times the amount is this dark matter. And again, it has to be there to account for the observations we make. And then to make things even worse, 68 grams, for one gram of stuff that we've studied, 68 grams is what we call dark energy. I'm going to come back to dark energy in a little bit. Um, Again, this is another thing that we know exists based on observations, but like dark matter, It's not something that we can easily detect or measure. But we know that it must exist and the amount of it, you know, vastly there, is vastly outnumbers everything else. So 
Really, what we've been studying in the class is about 4 to 5% of the universe. That's ordinary matter. The little bit we get into dark matter and dark energy here is really the rest of the universe. And not that I'm not telling you all about it, but we don't know much about it. You know, we can talk about its existence, how it works, you know, where it's, what it's doing. But in terms of what it is, this is still current you know, cutting edge astronomical research trying to figure out what these things are. Uh, dark matter probably first detected in the 1970s. Relatively new, talking about 40 years worth. Dark energy was a couple decades after that. So these are things we've only been looking at for the last couple of decades. These are not things like gravity, which we've been talking about going back to the time of Newton, or any other observations that we make. These are actually you know, things that are within the last couple of decades that we've really been able to study and to understand. So we will come back a little more to dark energy in the next section. Um, finishing up here, again, dark matter. Based on our measurements, there's a lot of dark matter in galaxies, in clusters of galaxies. And we think it is made of cold, remember that means slowly moving, exotic particles. That's the current. That's, I should say, that's current, you know, current, mo current models, current, um, uh, the current consensus among astronomers is that this is what this is. That doesn't mean that is what it is. Take the class again in a decade or 20 years from now, might be quite different. What we think, what do you think is there may be quite different than what we see, what we think it is today. You know, if you take in the class, and when I took my first astronomy class, there was no such thing as dark energy. And dark matter was actually called missing matter. They were trying to figure out why the rotation curves were doing this. So just decades ago, just a few decades ago. So what will we know about it later on? But luminous matter, you know, everything we've been discuss discussing in stars and galaxies, pretty much what we've gone through for almost 28 chapters of the textbook, is this normal matter, but it's only a fraction, 4 or 5% of the entire mass of the universe. All right, so last section of this one, we want to look a little bit about um, how this ties into galaxy formation. So first looking at galaxies as to how they form. How do these galaxies form? We can look at two things. We can look at a top-up, 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 then you're in trouble if you're at the top and going up. How about top-down or bottom-up formation? So top-down formation means that the gas formed stars very early on, and then it was just slow evolution. So an elliptical galaxy formed, the galaxy was forming, everything collapsed into stars, all these stars formed, it was a very bright galaxy, and then slowly over time, the most massive stars evolved when supernova, lower mass stars, lower mass stars, lower mass stars, and it slowly just evolved into the galaxy that we see today. A bottom-up model involves that you form smaller galaxies first, and then the giant ellipticals formed through mergers of the galaxies. So galaxies slowly merge together to form the galaxy that we see today. And like most things, current thinking is that it's something in between these two. That maybe these small galaxies did form, or some galaxy formed that had really gone through a big burst of star formation. But then the largest galaxies did build up through collisions. And we looked last time how common collisions are. In terms of spiral galaxies, so that's for an elliptical galaxy, for spiral galaxies, again, it's, we think of it as more of a bottom-up formation. They took a longer time to form than elliptical galaxies. 
So we think that spirals are more a result of, of uh, the bottom-up formation. So rapid collapse, very quickly collapsing into a disk, and then everything else that changes that causes their evolution is caused through mergers. So you would have formed a very small galaxy initially, and then rapidly collapse down to a, to a small disk, and then adding to that over time by mergers through other galaxies. How, does, how do we evolve between the types? Well, this is what Hubble thought when he came up that his, with his model. You know, he looked at these elliptical galaxies, which are big spherical galaxies, and he saw them at big spherical ones, and they were slightly flattened, and some were more flattened and more flattened, down to about a football size. So he looked at that as maybe that's an evolution. Maybe you start off with a big spherical galaxy, and it slowly collapses, and then it collapses down to a disk, and then it becomes a spiral galaxy. That's not possible. Right? Now we now understand more, we know that that would not be possible because those elliptical galaxies don't have any cold dust. They don't have any gas. Or gas or cold dust. Uh, cold gas or dust to form stars. So where did that all come from as this collapsed? Essentially the elliptical galaxy didn't have any of that. However, we do believe now that things can sometimes go the other way. That a massive collision of two spirals could create a massive burst of star formation, use up all the gas and dust remaining, and distort all the orbits of the stars in the process forming an elliptical galaxy. So you have some ways to go, to go one way, but not what originally what Hubble had originally thought. When he had made that diagram, we called the tuning fork diagram of the galaxy classifications, that was what he had thought, maybe this is an evolutionary sequence. It probably isn't. Galaxies evolve much more through collisions now. So formation of galaxies, and then we have formation of clusters. I showed you this model before, where we can simulate what the universe was like. So we can run that time forward from very early after the origin of the universe, and watch structures begin to form. And it forms very similar to what we see in the universe today. And of course that's correct, we've adjusted the models to make that work. We know what we're supposed to get and we have put into our models what gives us the correct answers. So if we look now, based on just ordinary matter, this large scale structure had to have formed quickly in the first few billion years. And if you use just ordinary matter, you can't do that. You can play with the models, you can make you know, the adjustments you can make. You know, can't just throw wild, crazy things in there, but you can make a, diff make a few different adjustments. You can't form this kind of structure yet. You can do it, but it might take another 20 or 30 billion years. Obviously, we're here after 14 billion years, so something different must have happened. So it takes more than just what we see with the amount of ordinary matter. The cold dark matter models can reproduce what we've seen. So we can reproduce, we can do a model, and we can get is it going to match all our structures and clusters perfectly? Of course not. But it will match the general areas as to what we see. We'll see the general patterns that we get. So in terms of forming structure, uh, the initial universe would have been, but not quite, very smooth. So very early on, and we're going to talk about things like the Big Bang coming up, but initial universe was really very, very smooth, very only slight imperfections. However, the dark matter, which doesn't interact except through gravity, was not affected by the intense heat 
the high temperatures that existed then. So it started to form clumps first. Now, dark matter doesn't interact with ordinary matter except through its gravity. So when you formed a clump of dark matter, it then gathered all the ordinary matter to it. It had gravity, and as the universe started to cool, it served as, you know, here's the seed material. Here's where things are starting, and it's pulling all the ordinary material into it. We still can't see the dark matter. It's still clumped there. But it gathered all of the ordinary material to those clumps. So wherever those clumps happened to form, that gathered the ordinary matter, the stuff that we can actually see. And those clumps, the elongated clumps, gave us the filamentary structure that we see today. So the way the dark matter clumped together is what gave us our structure. And that's because you get this head start. The dark matter is able to begin to form clumps before ordinary matter could. Ordinary matter interacts through electromagnetic radiation. So early on in the universe, it was just trading back and forth, forming, converting matter into energy and back and forth. So it was not able to clump until things cooled off sufficiently. Dark matter could have cooled off earlier based on the models. Um, when we look at these clumps within the clumps, then we begin to form uh, structures from the bottom up. So large star clusters and small galaxies are what formed first. Not the massive galaxies that we looked at, not the big spirals, not the giant ellipticals. Those didn't form first. First you formed smaller ones. You had collisions that would start to form the supermassive black holes at the center. That would give us our active galactic nuclei that we've talked about. The galaxies would then group into clusters and superclusters, and the process is continuing. So it's still going on today. The dark matter is gathering all of this material. So maybe that 90-10 is slowly changing. Right? The 90% of the matter, the 90% of the matter in 10% of the universe may become even more exaggerated over time. That you'll have more and more of the matter concentrated into smaller and smaller portions of the universe. All right, uh, so that would then be, again, the clusters would have formed the same way. You would have formed the small galaxies building into bigger galaxies. You would have formed small clusters that then merged into, uh, sorry, small clouds forming into galaxies, which came into clusters and then superclusters. So this, you slowly built that up. There are small clumps of material, small clouds of material forming into galaxies, which then eventually form into clusters, group into clusters. And the clusters would then group into larger and larger clusters over time. So it's, it's a way and with our models that we can currently explain the, uh, the structures that we see in the universe today. So it's one of those things. We see the, the, uh, the structure that we see is the observation. That's what we know is true. We have to work with our models to match that. We have to adjust our models to match what is going on there. So finishing up this chapter. Again, galaxies form through a com probably through a combination of the top down. In other words, they all formed at, one, formed at once in one big event versus a bottom up through mergers. They probably are a combination of those two. Uh, dark matter is needed. We need it to explain the structures that we see in the universe. There are various measurements that can be made and they all limit how much ordinary matter can be in the universe. And they're all pretty much stuck on that 4 to 5% range. So it's not just rotation curves. It's not just gravitational lensing. There are other measurements that we make that really limit how much ordinary matter there can be, which means we need this dark matter to explain what we see. 
And we can do those simulations. The way we can uh, duplicate that is using the cold dark matter. So again, slowly moving material. All right. Questions? I know this is the one that's kind of way out there, right? Otherwise, we have chapter 29 kind of looking at our model of the universe and trying to understand, you know, what is going on. You know, how do we talk about the universe? How old it is? How did it form in the first place? So this is where we'll get to talk about the Big Bang a little bit. So what do we have? Well, first of all, what is the age of the universe? Um, how can we determine the age of the universe? Well, if we imagine the universe is expanding, for right now at a constant speed, whatever the Hubble constant is, it's expanding outward, we can then trace things backwards. If things are traveling out, you know, something's travel if two things are traveling away at 10 miles an hour in each direction, we can trace them back and they're 20 miles an hour, 20 miles away, we know that an hour ago they were 10 miles away and then two hours ago they were right together. And that's when they left and spread out. We can do the same thing with the galaxy. We can actually calculate how old the universe is. If the universe is expanding now, you can imagine that a billion years ago it was smaller. Two billion years ago it was even smaller. Three billion, four billion, it had to get smaller and smaller, right? It's expanding. If nothing else is changing, the universe had to be smaller before. And you can then use that expansion to trace it back. When was the, all of the universe in one point? And we can do that using Hubble's law. So we can make the calculation uh, that says, right, probably an equation you've used at some point, distance equals velocity times time, or time is equal to the distance divided by your velocity. You know, how long does it take you to get someplace? Well, if, if it's a hundred miles away and you're traveling 50 miles an hour, you divide the two and you tell, find out that it took you two hours. It would take two hours. We could do the same thing with Hubble's law. Except that in Hubble's law, the velocity is given in Hubble's law by Hubble's constant times the distance. So distance divided by velocity is the same as distance divided by Hubble's constant times the distance. You've got a distance here and a distance here. One in the numerator, one in the denominator, they cancel. So the only thing that matters to figure out the time, how old the universe is, is one divided by Hubble's constant. So if you know what Hubble's constant is, You've got to work out the units because Hubble's constant is kind of in a weird set of units. So you actually have to do some unit conversions to get the, a, to do the, get the age. But just one divided by Hubble's constant tells you how old the universe is. If everything has been expanding at a constant speed. That's probably not likely. So um, what do we mean by the velocity is, why would the velocity change? Well, up till just a couple of decades ago, astronomers would have told you that the universe would be decelerating. It was slowing down. Why? Well, every gravity, every galaxy is pulling on every other galaxy. So if you're pulling on something, right, gravitational force is always attractive. So you have this galaxy here, we're pulling on it, it's a little bit, it might be going a tiny bit slower tomorrow than it was going today. So it should constantly be slowing down. So that's what we would have expected. And how much the slowing would depend on how much matter there is in the universe. The more matter there is, the more things would slow down. The less matter, the less things would slow down. But regardless, everything should slow down. 
can't keep going at the same speed because gravity is only works in one direction. It only slows things down. So everything should slow down over time. However, what we find is that things are accelerating. So making measurements using the type 1 supernova, right? remember back, that was a couple units ago, type 1 was the white dwarf star, gathered too much mass, pushed, pushed it over that 1.4 solar mass limit, and it ripped itself apart. Those are nice standard bulbs because they're all exactly the same. Every single type 1 supernova is a white dwarf star with exactly 1.4 solar masses. They're all exactly the same. So they should all get just as bright. So we use them as standard bulbs across the universe. So what we would find is if the universe were decelerating and slowing down, that it was accelerating faster in the past and slower now, that the supernovae should appear brighter than expected. As we could measure them further and further away, as measurements got better and we could look at things further and further away, we should see them brighter than expected. And what we're finding is that they're not. They're actually fainter than expected. Which means that the universe is accelerating. So it's not only expanding, but it's expanding at a faster rate now than it was in the past. And this was the discovery that led us a couple of decades ago to the discovery of dark energy. Dark energy is what is causing it. So what is causing the universe to accelerate? There has to be something that is overwhelming gravity. Because gravity would cause everything to slow down. Maybe not stop, maybe not collapse back in, but would cause things to slow down. So in order to accelerate that, we need some kind of energy. And this energy is what they call a vacuum energy. The energy of the vacuum of empty space. And there is a lot, even though space is empty, we talk about empty space, there's still a lot going on there. Particles and antiparticles can constantly appear and disappear instantaneously. So there are some things going on even though there is empty space there. Uh, but that is what we call the vacuum energy. And it does come out of Einstein's equations, can explain this and can account for the increasing expansion of the universe. But early on it wasn't very important in the very earliest part. Right, the very early section, the universe was slowing down. It had a lot of matter. It was very compressed. But as it began to expand, then the dark energy started to become dominant. So early on, mass, ordinary matter, made up a higher percentage of the universe. Dark matter made up a higher percentage. And the dark energy wasn't that 67, 68% that it is today. So it has an increase, but everything else has gotten spread out so much that this dark energy has now taken over. And it is causing the universe to accelerate. So this kind of schematic is showing roughly over 14 billion years, well in this case 15 billion years, what is happening to the universe. It expanded quickly, slowed down, and then we're up here on the edge where it's already starting to accelerate out and it's going to start to accelerate out even faster and faster over the next few billions of years. Not in our lifetimes, right? Not in hundreds of years or thousands of years. Remember astronomical times? We're taking billions of years. But another billions of years from now, the acceleration will be even more rapid. And dark energy will take over and expand everything out very, very quickly. So what this means is that this acceleration makes the universe appear younger than what Hubble's constant would tell us. Remember Hubble's constant 
is a constant. It's saying the universe is expanding this fast and it always has. That's not what actually is happening. It's actually changing its expansion. So the expansion rate is actually changing. It was expanding quickly, then more slowly, and then faster again. And that's the current model that we use. Now when we look at all of these, you know, how old is the universe? We have various ways, a couple different ways of comparing the ages. Globular clusters are one of them. Going back to our section on stars, we can determine the age of a globular cluster by looking at what the oldest stars still on the main sequence in it are. If the stars are stars like the sun, then it's 10 billion years old. If the stars are cooler stars than our sun, then it might be 11 or 12. And when we look at the oldest globular clusters, we find them dating to 12 to 13 billion years old. So consistent with a nearly 14 billion year old universe. If we start finding stars that are 20 billion years old and the universe is 14 billion, something's wrong. Right? Can't have the stars older than the universe. They had to have formed after the universe did. So it's consistent with that. We can also look at um, determining using uranium decay. There's a method that's been used again to do to estimate how old the universe is from the oldest stars. And this gives us again a value of those oldest stars consistent with the age of the universe. So what we determine from the expansion is consistent with the observations that we make. Which is good. We don't want to find it. would be like going and finding a rock on the moon that was 8 billion years old. The moon's only 4.5 billion years old like the rest of the solar system. If you found something that dated to 8 billion years old, what is it? Must have been something that formed elsewhere? and happened to come to the moon, like we had that interstellar traveler that came through. You know, if you have things from outside the solar system, you could have them older. But how do you have something from outside the universe? So how, something, how does something come from outside the entire universe? So the things are consistent gives us you know, confidence that our measurements, that our you know, theories at least are consistent. So when we look at different models of the universe and what we can explain, there are, there are different things that can happen in the history of the universe. This is what we're looking at right now. But this is overall just an accelerating universe. So the universe would have started out very small and constantly accelerated. Gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And not only gotten bigger, but gotten bigger at an increasing rate. We know that any model must include expansion. Right? Go back. The models have to include a couple of things. They have to include expansion. So if you have a completely static universe, that's inconsistent with the observations. How do you explain Hubble's observations and current observations the universe is expanding? So you can't have a completely static universe just sitting there. So they have to include expansion and they have to be, uh, obey the cosmological principle. They have to be homogeneous and isotropic on the largest scales. So we can have the accelerating universe, which we believe we're in right now. We're out in, this is current and this is what would happen. You can also have a coasting universe where it's getting bigger, but just barely. And you can have a decelerating universe. So here you have really no change. It's just going at a constant speed. That's what Hubble's law would give us. If we go with a constant Hubble's law, everything is expanding at the same rate. So right after the Big Bang, it was expanding at some rate. Today it's expanding at that rate. Billions of years from now, it'll still be expanding at that same rate. Or we have what we thought not that long ago would be a decelerating universe. Whether it would decelerate enough to stop, and if you stop the expansion, 
what has to happen. You, all you've got left is gravity. So it starts pulling things back together. So if you st ever stop the expansion here, then things would actually collapse back down and you would have a big crunch. Have a big bang when things start, you have a big crunch as everything uh, floods into each other again as it crashes at the end of the universe. Um, here, you'd have a, a decelerating, but it's decelerating slower and slower and slower. It's still just expanding. So you can have those three different models. And what they depend on is how dense the universe is. How much material, mass energy, is within the universe. So in order to do this, we have to kind of imagine everything. We have clumpy things. We have things like planets. We have stars. We have galaxies. Just imagine that all that material is just spread uniformly through the universe. The density would be the same. But it's just a way to think about that. But if you have that, you're going to have more matter. Means you're going to have more gravity. Means you're going to slow the expansion more. So you could have cases like one here, where the universe started at some point, expanded. There's where we are today, where everything is meeting. And eventually it would slow down, stop. And just like throwing a ball up in the air, right? it stops at the peak when I throw it up in the air, and it comes back down. So that was what would happen to the universe under a closed universe or a high density universe. Under a low density universe, you can get number two or number four. This is just what we have on a, or a very low density universe that things would expand forever. Four is if you add in dark energy. That would go in, that would accelerate outward. So the size of the universe would continue to grow and grow and grow even faster over time. Here it shrinks. Here's where the universe actually shrinks. Here's where it slows down, but it continues to grow. Um, and here is where it, uh, here's where it slows, here's where it continues to grow faster, accelerates a little bit, and here's where it's really accelerating. Let me add in the dark energy. So dark energy is really important for this to be able to explain the observations that we see with the supernovae. So unless there's some reason that we can come up with that supernovae were different 13, 12, 13 billion years ago than they are today, some reasonable reason as to why they'd be different. We have to accept dark energy. There has to be something. Exactly what it is, again, is still in question. But there has to be something that is causing the universe to accelerate the way that we see it. So right now, what is happening to the universe? Well, there's the Hubble deep field right now. But the current evidence shows that the universe will continue to expand forever. Even if we ignore dark energy, etc., it still looks like there is not near enough matter to have it stop and collapse back in on itself. So for right now, the prediction is that you go from something like this, you know, there's the universe that if you could come back in billions of years, it's all gone. Nothing left there. It's still all there. It's just expanded out so much that we wouldn't even be able to see the distant galaxies. Remember, it's accelerating. It's going faster and faster and faster. So the current thought is, not in 100 years, not in 1,000 years, but we're talking tens of billions of years now, that eventually the universe would get very cold and very dark, and there would not be a lot there. You'd still have individual galaxies. This would not affect the galaxies. So this universal acceleration does not affect the galaxies any more than the expansion. But the space between them would all become much, much larger. So 90% of the matter in 10% of the universe to 90% of the matter, or 99% of the matter in 1% of the universe would be the trend that we would be going towards based on the current observations.
So finishing up this section, again we can use Hubble's constant to estimate the age, but that does make the assumption that the rate has not changed and we're seeing that you know, there are thoughts that the universe should be slowing down, but observations show that the universe is accelerating and getting bigger and getting larger and larger and larger. And what it's telling us is that eventually the death of the universe, based on our current, current knowledge, would be very cold and very dark. But there's some other things to come back to this in the last two sections here. So, let's go and talk about the Big Bang. And actually the first idea of this was uh, by Lemaitre in the 1920s. So, a picture of him there. He gave an idea of a primeval atom that broke apart. And forming the present atoms that we have in the universe. He kind of thought of this as a firework show that this atom just broke apart constantly. And you're seeing the dying embers right now of that fireworks. So, essentially it was a fission model. Now this is 1920s. Things like radioactivity and nuclear power were things we were just starting to, you know, not even completely comprehending. We didn't even know that a neutron existed at this point. Uh, we were barely getting the very beginnings of radiation. But it was the first idea of some kind of Big Bang that we know of. Today we know a lot more about nuclear physics. We know that the universe had to be a lot hotter and denser in the past. So what do we know? What did we learn? Well, just a couple decades later, we learned about nuclear fusion. Right? 1920s, we really didn't know what powered the stars. What caused the stars to glow, we still did not know. That was something we were still figuring out. So here we were finding out that nuclear fusion, for sure, was the source of the energy of the stars. And George Gamow decide, thought, suggested that the universe built heavy elements through nuclear fusion. Well, that's kind of similar to what we think today. The universe didn't do it. It was done in stars, we now know. So the exact details were a little bit different. But today we know that only the lightest elements were formed in the Big Bang. Hydrogen, helium, and a small amount of lithium. And if you look at a periodic table, those are elements 1, 2, and 3. There are 92 naturally occurring uh, elements. And most of the ones that make up our bodies Right, things like carbon, oxygen, um, are not part of this. So there's other ones that had to be created other ways. But we're starting to get a closer idea to how the universe might have originally begun. So what I want to look at is kind of the quick history of the universe. This is a figure from the textbook that really goes back and looks at the entire time since the Big Bang. Uh, this is not in a linear scale. This goes back from today, right here, at 10 to the 17th seconds. Large number of seconds. Uh, but if you go back, each of those are powers of 10. So 10 to the, what is we have? 10 to the 7th, 10 to the negative 3rd, 10 to the negative 23rd, etc. 13th, 23rd, 33rd, 43rd. So we're going to a tiny fraction of a second. So if you go all the way from here, out to here, you're talking about one one thousandth of a second. So it's set to magnify what went on because this is when all the interesting stuff happened. The universe hasn't changed a whole lot in the last billion years or five billion years. Not tremendously in the last, little bit, but not tremendously in even the last ten billion years. So it's all compressed down here because there hasn't been a lot of change. 
Once we formed stars and galaxies and they went through their lives and all of that and formed some heavier elements. But what really was interesting was what was going on back in this earlier section. So that's why I wanted to qualify. You're talking about one one thousandth of a second here at the very earliest history. And the temperatures, if you imagine compacting it down, the temperatures had to be a lot higher. After a hundredth of a second, you were at a hundred billion Kelvin. The sun for nuclear energy needs, 50, needs well, you need 10, 10 million, 10 million, not billion, 10 million Kelvins to fuse hydrogen to helium. The sun's about 15 million. This is billions. To do the um, triple alpha process, to fuse helium into carbon, you need to get up to about a billion degrees. Again, this is tremendously hotter than we need for anything of that. And that's after the, that first hundredth of a second, which is looking out in here someplace. Temperatures were even higher and higher as you go back further. So things do not behave the same at these very high temperatures. And in fact, when you get to these really high temperatures, radiation becomes dominant. So we know that matter can be converted to energy. That's how nuclear power plants work. E equals mc squared. Convert a small amount of matter into energy, create lots of, or create a small amount of matter, take, create lots of energy. So you need these very high temperatures that existed there, <coughs> which allowed you to then convert energy into matter. If you have really high temperatures, you got lots of energy. And now not only can you convert matter to energy, but you can convert energy into matter. Now those temperatures, again, 6 billion Kelvin, much higher than star temperatures, much, much higher. At that temperature, you can, convert, you can convert energy into electrons and positrons. So you can take energy, form an electron-positron pair. So you can actually form matter from energy. You've got to get a lot higher. You've got to get up to 100 trillion Kelvin to form protons and antiprotons. These are a lot more massive. That's why you need a much higher temperature in order to do this. But you can do these conversions. So what happens is that you get gamma rays, collide together, and you form an electron and a positron pair. And of course, for the most part, electrons and positrons will also then annihilate each other. So if you're forming lots of these pairs, lots of them will be annihilating each other at the same time and forming back to gamma rays. But so you have this mixture. It's matter and energy, or sort of, you're losing the distinction between matter and energy. You're constantly converting between one and the other. So that's what would have happened very early on at about uh, the hundredth of a second time. So the earliest times, we don't know, 10 to the, when you get to 10 to the minus 43rd seconds, everything we know breaks down, quantum mechanics breaks down, general relativity breaks down. We can't explain what happens on times shorter than that. Now, of course, in terms of a second, that's a decimal point, 43 zeros and a one. So it's a really small fraction, but that's when everything started. So that's why it's really important to be able to know what could have happened there. But later on, you would have formed electrons into positrons. In between this, you would have formed protons and antiprotons in the same way, higher energy particles. And these would then, this would have been kind of a soup of particles, would have been what was present there. Too hot for anything to form. You couldn't form atoms. You couldn't form 
Uh, even nuclei at that point. You had to cool things down to the point where about three minutes in, you were actually able to form, to have protons and neutrons combine. And this may look somewhat similar to the proton-proton chain that we looked at way back when we talked about the sun and the stars. But you can combine protons and neutrons to make deuterium and eventually you're making helium. So you can form helium atoms or helium nuclei, not helium atoms, just a couple minutes after the Big Bang. Essentially at that point the universe was a gigantic star. It was the gigantic center of a star, forming, fusing hydrogen into helium. Slightly different method than the stars use because stars don't have free neutrons sitting around. They don't last, they decay into protons, but early on in the universe things would have been a little bit different. At about one second, Neutrinos were finally able to escape. Remember those things that can run through anything? Well, the universe was so hot and dense early on that even the neutrinos were trapped. But a second after the Big Bang, they were able to escape. Remember how hard they are to detect? These things are extremely hard to detect. But we would love to be able to do that because that would give us a piece of evidence explaining what we see. Explaining the models that I'm telling you here is what we believe happened. That would be a big piece of evidence. That's something that we could detect. Current technology just isn't there to be able to detect these neutrinos. They're going to be so low energy, we're not going to be able to detect them yet. But maybe at some point, decades in the future, we will be able to detect those, which would give us you know, a look into what the universe was like at about one second. At about three minutes, we start to form the nuclei. That's what we were looking at here. So hydrogen fused into helium. But very quickly, by within a minute, the universe had cooled too much. It expanded. As things expand, they cool. So you never fused any heavier elements. By the time you made up your hydrogen and helium, all you had left, you had nothing else left. So you had your helium, and you were now expanded too far. And you could no longer create any other heavier elements. So why didn't the Big Bang was so hot and so dense? It simply didn't have the time. You went through forming. Um, Got, the, got to the protons forming, the nuclei starting to form hydrogen, you formed all the protons, but then you start, by the time you got up to helium, you ran out of time. The universe cooled off too much to form anything heavier. And then eventually, over a couple hundred thousand years, you started, would have cooled off enough that the electrons that had formed now could combine with the atoms. So what, one of the things that we study in this, one of the things that was being produced was deuterium. We can study the amount of deuterium. This is the only place deuterium can be produced and still exists today. So all the deuterium that we have was formed in the early universe. It's formed in stars as part of the proton-proton chain, but it burns very quickly. It doesn't take a high temperature, to higher temp- as high a temperature to burn it. So any of it that forms within stars is immediately converted into helium. So what we find for it, the abundance of deuterium in the universe tells us about the early density of the universe. So it tells us how much matter there must be. Not dark matter, but ordinary matter. One of these studies allows us to limit the amount of dark of, of ordinary matter to about 5%. If there were more than 5%, if it were ordinary matter, so if dark matter were things like faint stars, brown dwarfs, black holes, we'd be able to find it. We'd be able to detect that. We'd be able to detect that in the deuterium abundance, but we can't. So the amount of deuterium that we see limits how much material 
how much of our ordinary material can make up the universe. So that's one of those other limits, one of those other pieces of evidence that dark matter must exist. All right, so how can we detect evidence for the Big Bang? Well, we've got to be able, you know, it's a good theory, has to be testable. It has to make predictions that we're going to be able to test. And one of the predictions that the Big Bang makes is that at one point when these atoms formed, all of a sudden the universe became transparent. So the universe prior to this, prior for the first couple hundred thousand years, was opaque, dark, so nothing could travel through it. So the light that tried to travel, the photons that were traveling, just kept getting absorbed. They couldn't actually stream out through the universe. Once you actually made atoms, all those electrons that were helping to block up the universe and make it uh, opaque are now tied up into atoms and all of a sudden light could, show, could, could flow freely from the universe. The universe all of a sudden became transparent. At this instant matter and radiation decoupled. So we have a decoupling that there's matter and radiation are more like what we think of matter and radiation today. Prior to that they were essentially the same. Right? Matter was just one form of radiation and radiation was just another form of matter as Einstein tells us. So here they decoupled and they became closer to what we think of today and the radiation could travel and we can still detect this today. So this is something that we can then detect this, the glow from the Big Bang. And in fact the prediction was made back in the 1940s um, by a couple of astronomers, Alpha, Herman and Gamma, that at this time, the universe would have had a temperature of about 3,000 Kelvin. That's a temperature we've seen before. It's about half the temperature of the sun. That's the temperature of a really cool star. So what that means is that, okay, this would have been the temperature, so this universe would have been emitting, right, star of that temperature would be emitting infrared radiation. The universe would have been glowing in infrared radiation, lots of red light, infrared, the entire universe. Just the universe itself, not the stars, not the galaxies, but the whole universe would have been giving off infrared light. The universe was like a star at this time. So it would have been giving off everywhere, we'd be getting this infrared glow. And we should still be able to detect that today. However, that was at a temperature of 3,000 degrees. Since then, the universe has expanded. And the universe has expanded by a factor of about 1,000. As the universe expands, it stretches out those wavelengths. So what was consistent with a temperature of 3,000 degrees a couple, after a couple hundred thousand years after the Big Bang would be consistent with a couple of degrees, just a couple of degrees now. So we should now be able to see not infrared waves, right? The universe isn't glowing red no matter wherever we look or even infrared, but those wavelengths will have been stretched out into the radio portion of the spectrum. And in the 1960s, Penzias and Wilson used their radio telescope shown behind them to detect radio waves coming from everywhere in the universe, no matter where they looked. Could be completely empty space, there was still this glow corresponding to radiation of about three degrees. I should specify they're not astronomers. These were actually engineers for Bell Labs. They were working on communications. They were just trying to get, all they were trying to do was get rid of all the noise in their radio telescope, account for every source of noise to get the best communications. So they weren't astronomers looking to, start to find this. They found it quite by accident as they got rid of every other source of noise. There was still this glow that was coming from everywhere in the universe. 
And we can measure that. We can actually measure that glow with new satellites. And in fact, the COBE satellite in the 1990s, the Cosmic Background Explorer, was designed to make this measurement. So this is one of those things that we make a measurement. Uh, the line is not connecting the dots. The line is the theory. So this is the theoretical observation. The points, the crosses, are the observations that were made. So they fit perfectly. It precisely, what we measure by the satellite matches almost exactly the predictions of a black body with a temperature of 2.73 degrees. So this is confirms, does it, does it prove the Big Bang? Right? We never prove anything in science. It is, but it confirms its predictions. It's a piece of evidence for the Big Bang. Because the Big Bang made this prediction, it was predicted back in the 1940s, and here in the 1960s, and then confirmed in the 1990s, we were able to confirm that the prediction that it makes is correct. So it's always great when a model makes a prediction that you then go find. It's a lot better than when you're matching predictions that are already in existence. So this did not exist when we came up with the Big Bang model. We also see some variations in the microwave background. When we actually map it out, so we make maps of the microwave background. This is the entire sky. So this is the entire globe of the sky looking at, and you're looking at temperatures. So 2.73 degrees is the average temperature, but there's some spots that are a little hotter over here, some spots that are a little bit cooler. This is greatly exaggerated. When we're talking about 2.73 degrees here, we're talking about variations that are, you know, thousandths, ten thousandths of a degree. So they're not big variations. It's not 2.73, 2.6 here and 2.8 here and 3 here. It's not varying that much. We're talking about variations in, you know, uh, thousandths or less than thousandths of a degree. So really, really small variations. But they do exist. It's pretty smooth, but not completely smooth. And this is, this is what the universe would have looked like in terms of density at that instant that atoms began forming of several hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. That's how the universe would have looked like. Less dense areas here, denser areas here. And that's what gave rise to all the structures that we see in the universe today. All the clusters, all the voids, that all ties back to what occurred back here. So in terms of the density, uh, this is actually the map done by the Planck satellite a couple of years ago in 2015 and showing those really smooth, very smooth, but seeing that there are variations, which again ties into the Big Bang, ties into the model that shows us that you know, there was some uh, variation that can account for the structures that we see in the universe today. And it gives rise that there are three possible geometries for the universe. You can have a spherical universe, you can have a flat universe, or you can have a hyperbolic universe. Let me put up the pictures there. So you can have a universe that if we imagine a two-dimensional universe, right? because we can't imagine three dimensions curved into a fourth dimension that we can't see without our heads exploding. Um, but we can imagine a two-dimensional piece of paper and you could imagine taking it and wrapping it and folding it into a sphere or wrapping it something into a hyperbolic shape. So here we're just taking the universe down dimensions to be able to explain that. So, this, the variations in the background radiation are related to this and tells us something about whether this universe is flat, 
spherical or hyperbolic. So again, we're getting another measurement of what the universe must be like and what the future of the universe would be. A spherical universe, parallel lines eventually meet. If you draw two parallel lines at the equator and just keep walking them forward, right, you have two people walking, eventually they're going to get close together and they're going to meet when they get up to the North Pole. That's an example of a spherical universe. Um, in a hyperbolic universe, they're going to get further and further apart. That's an ad adverse to everything you learned in geometry, right? But geometry you've gone through is Euclidean geometry or flat geometry. It's all based on everything being flat planes. If you do spherical geometry, everything is different. So you can do spherical geometry, you can do hyperbolic geometry. The behavior is different. So this kind of universe would be the one that would eventually collapse. These two would expand and in fact a hyperbolic one could actually accelerate its expansion. So we can see there's three different possibilities and it all depends on the density which is what we're really trying to get hopefully learn something about from these variations. So what are the results that we get from the microwave background? What we find is that the density is almost equal to the critical density, very very close. The age of the universe is got a pretty good estimate of that. I mean you think about that, that's about 30 uh, 38 million years error. That's how accurately we know how old the universe is now based on these measurements. Plus or minus 38 million out of nearly 14 billion. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good estimate on it. We can estimate the dark energy constant uh, content to be about 68%. Dark matter 31%. Only about 4% is the ordinary matter. Again the stuff that we've been studying all semester. So, finishing up this section, again the Big Bang model explains the observations that we have today. Uh, the only things that were formed early on were hydrogen, helium, and a little bit of lithium. Everything else formed in the stars. A piece of evidence for the Big Bang, the cosmic background radiation, it's a prediction that the model makes that this should exist. We find that it does and it matches those predictions exactly. And then the variations tell us something about the early history in the universe and how the structures today could have formed. Alrighty, I have one more section here so I'm going to see if we can get through get through it. If not I'll leave a little bit that way I can hopefully kind of tie up this, uh, tie up this section since the next uh, chapter kind of goes to a completely different topic. So we'll see if we, how much of this we get through before we run out of time. So 1% of the universe is visible matter. So we've been studying all semester so you know, it's astronomy of 1%, the 1% of stuff that's actually visible to us. Today we've actually started going into, you know, the stuff beyond that. It's a little bit about ordinary other ordinary matter, dark matter, and dark energy which make up large proportions of the universe. So this is kind of uh, our graph that shows the composition of the universe. There's dark energy, there's dark matter, there's ordinary matter, and in terms of the ordinary matter, you know, less than 1% of that is stars and galaxies really small proportion. So again, that's what we've generally studied. What do we study? We study the stars, the nebulae, the planets, the galaxies. Those are the kind of things we look at in astronomy. You know, they're all in a little tiny sliver here that's incredibly small as to what makes up the total mass energy content of the universe. And this has changed. You know, what we think now is not what we thought that long ago. You know, 1970s we knew of dark matter 
And visible matter was the ordinary stuff. And there was some ordinary type dark matter that existed. Ordinary dark matter meaning black holes, uh, neutron stars, white dwarfs, brown dwarfs, all just ordinary stars, ordinary material. So back in the 1970s, that's what we thought the universe was made up of. In the 1980s, it came to our attention that it was a lot more dark matter. So that the ordinary dark matter is this stuff here. The visible matter, the stuff that we're studying, is this little sliver. And the exotic dark matter was a big chunk of this. A decade later, into the 1990s, dark energy has taken over a lot of that. This exotic dark matter is squished down. And this only little tiny sliver is what's left over, is the ordinary matter. Again, the stuff we've been studying all semester. So what is the dark matter? Again, we don't know. We know that it cannot be ordinary matter of any kind. Whether it's ordinary, ordinary dark, this, ex this exotic dark matter cannot be that because that deuterium abundance, when we looked at that last section, the deuterium abundance limits how much ordinary matter there can be to just a couple of percent. That's the most there can possibly be. So that's a little bit about how it's changed over just a couple decades. Early 1970s here, by the year 2000, you know, our view of the universe had completely changed. What had been the whole pie is now just this tiny sliver. So uh, going back to the WIMPs there, the weakly interacting massive particles, they are very hard to detect. They only interact through the weak nuclear force. These don't interact through gravity. They don't interact through electromagnetic forces. So they only interact through one. They've been proposed to exist, but have not yet been detected. So we've detected some things like neutrinos, but these more massive ones that we're looking at for dark matter have not yet been detected. And we have measurements ongoing to try to look for those. We know that the dark matter is needed. Again, these are reviewing some of the stuff that we've gone over. And to be able to form galaxies and structures in the time we've had in the universe. In order for them to have formed, we need some kind of dark matter. Otherwise, they would not have formed yet. And because the dark matter does not <laughs> interact except through gravity, it could have started to form these structures before ordinary matter. Back when matter and energy were all combined together, the dark matter would have been above all that, aloof. It would have been able to start condensing and forming structures earlier on, giving that push we needed to form the structures in the universe that we today. And then ordinary matter would form within these gravity wells and form the structures that we do see. So that's one way we could form our structures. And that can explain the filaments and the voids that we see today. So quick history of the universe there. Big Bang. We have rapid inflation, matter forms. We have the nuclear fusion forming the elements over the first couple of minutes. The background is produced at a couple hundred thousand years. Stars and galaxies begin to form. And then finally today, dark energy is accelerating the expansion. So there's a quick universe, um, quick universe in one slide kind of rushing through all of that. And then the last thing I want to leave you with, and I'm probably going to I'll finish the rest of this up on when I go to chapter 30, because I'm not going to have time to get through all of it. But I want to leave you with a couple of the problems with the Big Bang model that I'll try to give you solutions for on Thursday. And some of the problems are flatness and the horizon problem. One of the problems is that we find that the density has to be equal to the critical density. OK, big deal. Why couldn't it be? It also has to be equal to the critical density to like one part in a million or more. 
So not just close to the critical, but exactly the critical density to many decimal points. It has to be the critical density. If it didn't, we wouldn't have any structure in the universe. What we find is based on this is that if it was a little bit bigger, the universe would have already collapsed. If it was a little bit smaller, the universe would have accelerated out so fast that we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had time to even form any structures in the universe. So why is the universe so flat? Why is the density almost perfectly the critical density? The other problem that I show here is what we call the horizon problem. Why is the background radiation so uniform? We can look out in this direction 14 billion years, well 15 billion years in this one. And we can see the cosmic background radiation. We can look in the opposite direction 14 billion years this way and we can see the background radiation. It's exactly the same. Remember how uniform it is to, to a tiny fraction of a degree. How does this area communicate with this area when if this one's 15 billion years this way and this one's 15 billion years that way, you're talking 30 billion years. They haven't had time to communicate in the history of the universe. You couldn't send information from this to this in the entire history of the universe. So areas that have never been in contact based on this have almost exactly the same temperature. And again, not just close, not just, oh, this one's two and a half degrees, this one's three, three and a half, and they all average out to thousandths, less than thousandths of a degree. So those are two problems with the Big Bang. And I'm going to give you another model that kind of builds, it doesn't change the Big Bang, but builds on it to try to be able to explain those. And I'll go over those next time in addition to doing chapter 30 and talk a little bit about the, the planets. So if you have projects, you've got till 6 o'clock tomorrow if you're submitting it up online, up on D2L. Um, otherwise, if you have them and you're turning them in now, I'll be more than happy to take those. If you're doing the homework, Again, if you need to drop a homework, that's a good way to do it, is to do homework five. If you did the first four, feel free to skip it, and you don't have to worry about that. And we'll go over those next time, and then all that's left after that would be the exam.